The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Fixing the Target on Aggressive Lymphoma, Guidance on the Next Phase of Integrating Targeted Agents into MCL and DLBCL Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YVY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for all coming this morning. It's great to see so many people here in person. And my name is Dr. Toby Ayer. I'm a consultant hematologist in Oxford in the UK. And I'm delighted to be joined by my esteemed uh, panel, uh, Dr. Rowan and Dr. Stratti. I'll introduce them more formally as we, as we go through. So thank you for all coming. We're going to be focusing on um, fixing the target on aggressive lymphoma. I'm going to be focusing on mantle cell lymphoma and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma today. I'm just going to give a brief introduction to the management of mantle cell lymphoma uh, to begin with, and then we'll hand over um, for the first lecture by by Dr. Rowan. So, um, as many of you know, mantle cell lymphoma treated in the frontline setting is generally um, generally treated with uh, immunochemotherapy. So, um, younger patients uh, are are treated with uh, an induction with um, cytarabine-based therapy. So, there are a variety of different regimes that you can see there. Um, either RCHOP with DHAP, DHAP regimes, or the Nordic regime, so Maxichop, high-dose cytarabine alternating. And, and some places uh, use um, hypersevad uh, with rituximab as well. Um, in older patients, there are a variety of regimes that are used. So you can see um, arbendamustine is, is a commonly used regime in, in generally in older patients. VR caps, so the use of Valcade with a you know, CHOP-like regime, um, is also quite commonly used um, as is, as is our CHOP, actually, in, in addition. Um, some places use um, uh, our, our back, so um, cytarabin with, with bendamustine and rituximab. And maintenance uh, therapy is typically used after autologous transplant, which is used as a consolidation strategy um, after uh, those more intensive induction regimes. And maintenance rituximab is given for, for up to three years there on an eight-weekly basis. Um, maintenance is also delivered after RCHOP, typically to progression or intolerance, as, as per the European Mantle Cell Lymphoma Network study. Um, and maintenance rituximab is also supported after Arbendamustin with uh, some uh, compelling real-world data evidence displaying uh, clear efficacy um, uh, in that setting. It hasn't been evaluated after VR-CAP, the randomized trial versus RCHOP didn't have our, didn't have, um, our maintenance. Um, and also um, the RBAC regime has been studied without maintenance to date. So kind of unclear, um, unclear the role of, of maintenance after those two um, settings. But our chemo, often followed by our maintenance, is a standard frontline uh, treatment. When you move to relapse disease, the NCCN guidelines um, suggest that, they, that the use of uh, BTK inhibitors is is basically formed in the, in the first relapse setting. And you can see a, a list of the BTK inhibitors that are available here. So acalabrutinib, ibrutinib, xanabrutinib are all covalent BTK inhibitors um, uh, with uh, high efficacy in this space. There are occasional patients who may not be appropriate for a BTK inhibitor, um, and uh, lenalidomide may be an option in, in that setting. 
And then moving beyond second line, there's, a, there's clearly a bit of a debate about uh, the role of allogeneic stem cell transplant as a, as a consolidation strategy, and this may be appropriate in some, in some places where either CAR T-cell therapy isn't available or, or deemed inappropriate. Um, and CAR T-cell therapy is a, an approved and licensed therapy in the third-line setting. Uh, there are slightly different um, approvals in, in Europe and the U.S., um, but uh, Brexicaptogene Autolucil is the, is the, is the product that is, um, that is available in, in this setting and is, is highly effective. Here's just a slide on the BTK regulatory status in mantle cell lymphoma. So this is the, this is the approvals in the U.S. Um, and also some of the ongoing clinical studies. So you can see here that, um, as mentioned, all, all of these, all of the covalent agents are, are approved and available um, for use in patients with relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, typically used at second line. But you can see a number of clinical studies um, ongoing, or, or some that are read out in. in uh, uh, Shine has obviously read out, but the other studies are, are either ongoing uh, in terms of the recruitment or are fully recruited, and we're waiting the readouts of these studies. And they may well influence the use of these agents moving forward. Um, two non-covalent BTK inhibitors are in development. So pertubrutinib and nemtubrutinib are both, both agents being studied in mantle cell lymphoma. There's an ongoing randomized study called the Bruin MCL321 study, which is a superiority study comparing pertubrutinib with investigator choice covalent BTK inhibitor, and that's enrolling at present and may influence the space at which pertubrutinib is used uh, in the future. So here are some kinone maps of the different BTK inhibitors. So you can see the irreversible or covalent BTK inhibitors listed at the top there. You can see acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib being, being more selective. Uh, for BTK than, than, than irbrutinib. I think that certainly speaks to uh, some of the toxicity profile differences we've, we've seen in clinical studies across B-cell uh, malignancies. And the reversible BTK inhibitors, pertubrutinib particularly, is a very highly selective uh, agent with, um, with an excellent toxicity profile. And as mentioned, these, these agents are still in studies, and there are some head-to-head -head studies um, with pertubrutinib ongoing, as, as mentioned. So how are we doing with mantle cell lymphoma in the first line setting? Well, um, many patients will uh, receive immunochemotherapy and will have a very durable remissions. Particularly younger patients may experience remissions of uh, six to ten years in the frontline setting, but that's not the case with all patients. So this is a study um, published last year in Blood Advances showing that um, patient survival is, is, is often dictated by the time at which they progress after frontline therapy. So progression of uh, disease uh, within 24 months, particularly, and, and, and those that progress very early do, do, do considerably worse in terms of overall survival. So there's a clear unmet need in those patient populations, and this has been shown in a training and a validation uh, cohort. How do patients do after covalent BTK inhibitors? This is a UK study of over 200 patients looking at how patients did um, after receiving a BTK inhibitor, in, in this case a brutinib, universally in the first relapse setting. And what you can see here is that if patients weren't fit for further therapy after receiving a brutinib, their median survival was only 0.4 months, so extremely short. Um, Patients who did receive further therapy or who were fit for further therapy did do better, unsurprisingly. And, and in this study, in, in the pre-CAR T era, um, RBAC therapy was, was seen to be the most effective. But of course, the, this is the type of therapy you can deliver to, to much fitter, um, fitter younger patients. Um, so, so clearly there is an unmet need in the, in the post-covalent BTK uh, space. 
Moving on to diffuse sludge B-cell lymphoma, here's a, here's a schematic from the NCCN guidelines. So today's topic, of course, is, is, is about targeted therapy, and there are some limited um, targeted therapies that are available um, in diffuse sludge B-cell lymphoma. Clearly, the field is, is more dominated by immunochemotherapy, CAR T-cell therapy, and perhaps the development of bispecific agents and so forth. But what you can see here is that... Um, in the NCCN guidelines listed under non-transplant um, options, ibrutinib is listed in, the, in patients uh, who have uh, non-GCB type, and we'll talk more about this, and also Selenexor is also a licensed and approved uh, medication uh, after, after prior, prior therapy, so after more than two lines of prior therapy. Of course, there's still work to be done in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, so this is uh, well-documented data from, uh, from the Scholar 1 study suggesting that patients have a median survival of only about six months um, following re relapsed disease, and this is particularly the case in those who relapse early um, and those who are rituximab refractory. Okay, so um, that's an introduction to, uh, to today's, um, to today's uh, topics. Uh, we will um, now, in a case-based clinical consult session, talk about the current status and the future directions of BTK inhibitors um, and other targeted agents in mantle cell lymphoma. We'll then move on to, um, to looking at the potential for the expanded role of targeted agents in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And as mentioned, do uh, jot down your questions. We'd, we'd love to get through as many of those as we can at the end. Without further ado, I will hand over to Professor Gia Rowan. So she's a professor of... Um, of clinical medicine um, in the program at Will Cornell um, in New York, and I'm delighted to, um, to invite her to speak about expanding therapeutic goals in mantle cell lymphoma and further integration of targeted agents in this space. So uh, looking forward to your talk. Thanks very much. <clears throat> thank you so much, Toby, and thank you all for coming. Um, I'm delighted to be here and uh, reviewing the uh, management uh, with BTK inhibitors and beyond uh, in mental cell lymphoma treatment landscape. Um, so we, we have those questions and I want, um, uh, want us to keep them in mind and we will go back and review them after um, some review of our data here. So, um, so I think that those are the questions, you know, for somebody who previously was treated with chemoimmunotherapy uh, therapy and had relapse, and what are the options uh, for relapse uh, refractory disease? Um, some questions to ask, you know, after relapse, would a BTK inhibitor be the next treatment option, and which one? Um, and would comorbidity affect the treatment choices? So I think those questions are very important because it really touched upon two important aspects to consider. One is efficacy of BTK inhibitors and also uh, what are those uh, pertinent side effects, especially in the, in the setting where chronic therapy are really the modality to go with um, BTK inhibitors compared with chemoimmunotherapy, which are more time limit and uh, finite. So um, we would consider, um, certainly with our current data, you know, the uh, co covalent BTK inhibitors are a standard second-line option to offer to our patients. And um, in addition, you know, the next-generation BTK inhibitors compared with the first-generation, this seems to be more selective and better tolerated, and we can review those data and to see how we can apply that individually to our patients. 
So um, here is the long-term data on the uh, first-in-class BTK inhibitor ibrutinib, which are very familiar to you. Uh, this is really very impressive. Now we have a medium follow-up over 10 years, and with um, 370 patients that's pulled from three clinical trials. And as you can see here, the overall median progression-free survival for all comers um, is at, at 12.5 months. So we can say it's one year median progression-free survival, overall survival 26.7 months. Um, really, that's running out uh, as long a mileage as possible. But certainly, when you look carefully into a stratification of patients, those patients who achieve CR certainly has a better survival outcome, both in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival. In addition, um, if you look at when they were exposed to BTK inhibitors, for those patients who received uh, BTK inhibitor after multiple previous lines of therapy, the median progression-free survival was less optimal at 10 months. And for those who um, obviously receive that much earlier, you can anticipate that you know their mileage for their progression-free survival would be much longer. So here, that's data to be reviewed and lesson to be learned where uh, BTK inhibitors, perhaps if we move them closer um, in the earlier lines of relapse, refractory treatment, and perhaps you know the outcome would be better and much longer. The um, next data... Uh, is on acalabrutinib, which is the next generation uh, BTK inhibitor. Um, and this is a longer-term follow-up um, of the uh, acalabrutinib single-agent data in relapse refractory uh, mental cell lymphoma patients. Again, here uh, we have data now uh, close to uh, three-year uh, follow-ups, and the median progression-free survival here um, is at 22 months. Um, I do want to point out that the demographics, the um, median uh, prior therapy was two lines of therapy. So compared with the ibrutinib uh, patient population, you know, you can imagine that this could be uh, including patients not as heavily previously treated uh, compared with ibrutinib. Um, and the overall uh, response rate was about 80% and 40% CR. And that was very consistent from earlier report versus longer term uh, report. So, um, you know, the data looks very encouraging uh, with the next generation acalabrutinib. And we also have data now on xanubrutinib, uh, the other next generation uh, BTK inhibitor, uh, with a medium follow-up close to uh, three years as well. And um, as you can see here, the um, the median PFS um, is uh, close to 33 months. And um, the uh, the overall survival rate at three uh, three years, um, uh, close to 75%. Uh, again, you know, this is relatively young as far as the data longevity compared with ibrutinib. But nonetheless, you know, the activity of the next generation xanobrutinib uh, is very impressive. And uh, we're sort of eager to see how this long-term data would continue to uh, progress. Um, again, they provide very effective second-line uh, treatment for our patient with relapsed refractory mental cell lymphoma. So efficacy aside, what are other data or um, important um, data that we should look at to select for your BTK inhibitors? Uh, we do want to look at side effects profiles and um, 
you know, there are um, uh, specific side effects to BTK inhibitors as summarized here. Uh, they reflect certainly on-target inhibition, but also off-target activity of those uh, BTK inhibitors, depending on their spectrum of activity. As you can see here, cardiovascular side effects, atrial fibrillations, hypertensions, um, uh, bleeding um, effect on platelets, and um, you know, inflammatory aspect, as well as epithelial. Um, cells, uh, including gastrointestinal aspect, all of which are important to consider, and especially that we're thinking about chronic therapy in a relatively elderly population with comorbid comorbidities. And we frequently consult our cardio-oncology um, colleagues uh, to manage those patients with cardiovascular uh, uh, comorbidities, especially with uh, atrial fibrillation and the need for anticoagulation. Um, and so on and so forth, as well as looking at, you know, drug-drug interactions and making sure that it's safe and optimal to select the appropriate BTK inhibitors for our patient. So here, here is uh, some brief summary in terms of side effects of uh, various BTK inhibitors uh, on the market for relapse refractory mental cell lymphoma, comparing to ibrutinib, um, where the uh, atrial fibrillation, you know, grade 3, uh, it's, it's around 5% or maybe less, uh, depending on which studies that you're looking at. Uh, both acalabrutinib and zanubrutinib uh, appears to have much, um, you know, favorable uh, side effects profile in that respect uh, for cardiovascular atrial fibrillation. Uh, uh, myelosuppression appears to be rather very similar and um, the uh, hemorrhage or uh, bruising, bleeding aspect, you know, acalabrutinib seems to have a more favorable data out there. And as you can see, however, across the board, discontinuation rate due to uh, side effects for all BTK inhibitors, you know, they're quite low, which is rather favorable, you know, considering we often offer this to our patient, you know, years on end, as long as they can retain their sensitivity and response to that. It's important to remember that. Um, and really, are there any data to actually compare BTK inhibitors, um, you know, head-to-head? -head? We, we often looking into CLL data as, you know, they are uh, randomized uh, phase three studies that compare with uh, comparing BTK inhibitors next generation to the first in class. For example, this slide's uh, looking at the Elevate, elevate Relapse Refractory CLL study where uh, the um, acalabrutinib was compared with ibrutinib. Um, here, the AE profile was uh, highlighted here, uh, where you can see that um, the all-comer uh, atrial fibrillation was 16% uh, with ibrutinib, where uh, in the compared to acalabrutinib, which seems to be lower at 9.4%, uh, uh, and this perhaps contributing to the consideration for discontinuation, which is higher in uh, ibrutinib and lower, uh, obviously, in the acalabrutinib. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. But again, we don't have the data directly in patients with mental cell lymphoma. Similarly, um, the Alpine study also considered uh, a direct comparison of zanubrutinib uh, with ibrutinib, also in the CLL population. And again, here, the AE profile uh, of special interest uh, was highlighted 
for cardiovascular um, disorder, you know, considering atrial fibrillation or maybe hypertensive episodes, ibrutinib uh, 25% compared with 13.7% with zanubrutinib, and um, atrial fibrillation in particular uh, 10% uh, compared with 2.5%. Uh, this is certainly in a larger uh, patient cohort and, you know, looking at CLL, but uh, it provides some information and at least some insights when we want to consider and extrapolate into the mental cell lymphoma population. And hopefully at some point we would have data for mental cell lymphoma to directly compare. So what about those patients who um, experience um, intolerance, you know, uh, within different classes, BTK inhibitors? How can we uh, provide some guidance in that regard? Um, So that goes back um, also looking at AE profiles. And here um, is a study where um, 60 patients with CLL, again, uh, that who were intolerant of ibrutinib and subsequently was provided with acalabrutinib. And the um, AE uh, summary was um, here, and as you can see here, the total incidence of uh, those uh, special interest uh, side effects was certainly higher, and that was a reason for them uh, to be uh, switched to acalabrutinib. Uh, study and across the board, you know, in respect to atrial fibrillations or GI side effects, cutaneous side effects and bleeding, uh, so on and so forth. And the uh, incidence of those um, AEs were less frequent uh, in the egg calibrutinib and also of lower grade, uh, which certainly uh, is, is um, promising and I think that's helpful to know. Um, because we oftentimes would run into that with uh, managing patients with mental cell lymphoma patients as well. And very similarly, this is another study which looked at um, intolerance to ibrutinib and switching to um, zanubrutinib, similarly in 67 patients, and, um, you know, uh, compare with a previous uh, ibrutinib um, uh, side effects, which is the, the, the orange bar, that, um, you know, the incidence on um, zanubrutinib was uh, much less uh, reduced in, in the green bar, as, as you can see here, just as a highlight uh, information. So, um, so for example, 70% was for ibrutinib um, and, th- and did not occur uh, compared with so from here, we're moving on to, um, you know, the next very important question. As you know, d- despite this being very convenient and uh, highly effective, in fact, and widely available to all mental cell lymphoma patients, there's a finite um, efficacy uh, durational response for BTK inhibitors sooner or later and depending on the risk profiles and tolerance, et cetera, that many of our patients would need to sequence out of the BTK inhibitor and onto something else. So here is a scenario on the same patient. Uh, Robert um, initially uh, presented and we discussed, progressed three years after BR therapy and then initiated covalent BTK inhibitors. Progression of disease was noted a year later. Now the patient's 69 years and performance status, reasonable but declining. So um, the question is, you know, is, is he a candidate for CAR-T therapy? And what are the options that we should consider um, at this very moment? And, and certainly, you know, things are evolving very rapidly in mental cell lymphoma. It's, it's important to know what are the options, standard of care, what are the research options, and what's on the horizon? 
And as summarized here, CAR T cell therapy is a approved option, and uh, we have to also obviously consider age and performance status and uh, applicability and feasibility and a novel non-covalent BTK inhibitor. Example, uh, potobritinib um, is, is currently in clinical trials and you know, certainly a very reasonable option to consider where available for those who um, uh, progressed on BTK covalent inhibitors. And you know, at this point, I think our, our, our common sense uh, conclusion is that there's no role for additional covalent BTK inhibitor if it was very adequately tried uh, in the past. So let's review the data for the CAR T cell, which is quite exciting. Uh, the, uh, the, the, um, but before that, certainly we, we uh, again come back to this um, EMET needs real world data, which we saw before in our introduction. And I, I want wanted to say that there, there are numerous reports on the um, you know uh, outcome for BTK uh, progressors, and um, they, they were not very good. And overall message was very similar. And this is a UK real world study looking at 200 patients, and particularly focusing on 100 uh, patients who progressed. And for those who did not have any option, which, you know, very uh, realistically uh, was five years ago, you know, their, their outcome was very poor, that only, you know, a few months or less. And for those um, who were able to move on to systemic salvage therapy, you know, clearly it's better, but it could be better. But now that we have many other options, um, in this slide, highlight chemo uh, immunotherapy of our back, which could be tailored for patients with somewhat reduced performance status and relatively elderly uh, with reduction of cytarabine dose. But this kind of provides a backdrop in terms of how, what can we go from here with the option that we have. And the other thing to, uh, to to keep in mind is that you know resistance is very common, and there's similarity, but a lot of differences between CLL and mental cell lymphoma. They just channel through different um, you know pathogenesis uh, signal transduction pathways, and being with mental cell lymphoma being most. Um, you know, similar, uh, differently uh, complex in that um, for CLL, you know, there's a BTK-specific, you know, mutations um, such as uh, C481S assist, um, uh, mutations and PLCG2, et cetera, mutations. Those could happen in mental cell lymphoma, but very, very rare. The primary resistance in mental cell lymphoma tend to go along with cell cycle dysregulations, NF-kappa-B, signal transduction, and other proliferative pathways. And for secondary resistance, you know, importantly to know that you know, it's all because of the genomic instability from cell cycle dysregulation, and we see very commonly TP53 mutations if... Um, you know, sequencing capacity and are feasible, and you'll be quite surprised and actually rather impressed with how frequent this could occur. So let's keep that in mind. Okay, so move on to the CAR T cell, the chimeric antigen receptor modified T cell, which is, um, you know, uh, has very much of a role to play in relapsed uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with mental cell lymphoma included. So in the ZUMA2 trial, which uh, is, is shown here, all the patients in this uh, study received prior BTK inhibitors, majority ibrutinib, some, I believe, ecalibrutinib, with just one dose at 2 million uh, cell infusion of the um, uh, CAR T cell. 
And, you know, the overall response rate was over 90%, and CR rate was 67%. Um, and the common side effects profile was as expected with uh, cytokine release syndrome, 15%, um, grade 3 and neurological events at 31%. Obviously, we also expect cytopenias, um, sometimes can be quite prolonged, and infectious complications as well. Uh, for the management of CRS and neurological events, we oftentimes resort to uh, tocilizumab, the anti-IL-6 antibody, and also steroids. And, and obviously, this requires a lot of resource and specialized center and expertise to provide uh, the optimized uh, uh, treatment experience and outcome. And again, you know, for the same study that long-term results are now available uh, where it could provide further guidance in terms of our selection and uh, treatment of those patients. So um, as, as you can see here, uh, this is a three-year outcome. And for all comers uh, of patients received treatment, the, the median PFS was uh, 25 months, so ballpark two years or calmer. For those patients with CR, we're looking at four years, uh, the median progression-free survival, and, um, and um, again, you know, as expected for those with less optimized treatment uh, response, you know, their uh, longevity was rather uh, limited. And so we can say that for those patients who achieve durable responses, uh, almost half of those patients has ongoing response, 24 months and beyond. Um, and again, uh, we, we start to see the signal that, you know, there continue to be additional salvage option required for those patients who would have high-risk outcome even after CAR-T therapy. So some of those uh, attention has turned to alternative uh, BTK inhibitors, the non-covalent um, inhibitor, uh, in particular with most uh, experiences with pertuprutinib. The, uh, it's highly selective, as you can see here on the, uh, the kinase uh, map, and uh, studies are ongoing for patients with CLL and also dedicated to mental cell lymphoma and other uh, B-cell malignancies. In, in this um, uh, study with mental cell lymphoma, you know, there's majority of them had BTK previous e experience, 100 patients, and then 11 who had no prior uh, experience. And their response waterfall plot is, is shown here. Essentially, those orange bars are people naive to BTK inhibitor, but all the blue bars are previous, either progressed or intolerant. And as you can see here, you know, th there's very good activity. The overall response rate was 51%. CR was 25% in pre-treated patients. And similar, uh, we saw those uh, in BTK naive and a rather small number of those patients. And uh, that included patients who pre previously progressed after a stem cell transplant and CAR-T therapy. Um, and so they were not being affected uh, by, you know, previous experience with those treatment modality. And um, so um, there is a updated uh, poster, um, session 4218 at this year's ASH, where after medium follow-up of 12 months, um, you know, the 
uh, response rates stand uh, strong at 58% and CR 20% and median duration of response uh, looks now to be 22 months. So as you can see, the curve seems to be rather um, slow slow uh, and flat, which is always very good. Uh, so it will be nice to check out the details of those uh, data. And as you know, that and perhaps many of you participate in the phase three Brown study uh, that's going to be comparing uh, the potubrutinib uh, head-to-head with other um, investigator choice of BTK inhibitors, and it, it would be very nice uh, to have those data uh, in hand. And in fact, n- not only efficacy data, but also AE data, like we said before, with uh, the covalent BTK inhibitor that we simply just don't have those head-to-head data. But with this phase three study, this is, is to be anticipated, you know, just with a single-arm um, uh, non-covalent BTK inhibitor, um, as you can see here, majority of the side effects, you know, they're uh, not frequent, first of all, and and also of fairly low grade, um, especially for those uh, side effects of special interest with respect to the covalent BTK inhibitors. So we also would be, um, you know, interested uh, curious to know what what is happening with those uh, intolerant of a regular covalent BTK inhibiting uh, patients. So there is also a poster in, in this year's ASH, and it, it would be 1797, and it would be uh, very informative uh, to check it out. Although the mental cell lymphoma patients in this information session would be rather low, um, but nonetheless, it would be informative. Um, so w- w- what is beyond CAR-T and also um, non, um, non-covalent BTK inhibitors? Um, there's information on bispecific antibodies. As you know, that there are a lot of data coming out by specific antibody for B-cell, aggressive subtype of um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And um, you know, for the dedicated mental cell lymphoma uh, study sessions, glofitimab, it's really a very, uh, it stands out and provide quite outstanding uh, data at this point. And um, on this cartoon here, which is rather interesting, um, it is off the shelf and it's engineered by a specific antibody. It it, uh, attacks CD3, it has arm, but it has two arms for uh, CD20. So it really very eagerly uh, uh, grabs all the CD20 uh, and and try to take care of them. So that's sort of one way of thinking about it. So it has very high specificity and avidity for uh, CD20 target. And, you know, the the downside of that is sometimes one could wind up with very severe uh, cytokine release syndrome. And to minimize that, you know, there were a couple of strategies that's deployed one of them is a step-up dosing, so you don't give the full dose, you give a slower dose, you know, and gradually uh, edge up to the desired dosing. And the other is to compete with binding. So um, anti-CD20 uh, antibody, obinutuzumab, was provided. It's called pretreatment. And the higher dose of pretreatment that you give, the less of the uh, binding of the glofitimib initially to your uh, CD20 tumor cells. So in doing so, you're slowly getting your body acclimate to this uh, situation and to minimize the CRS, which is quite, um, you know, quite an endeavor and intake. So, so it's, it's interesting indeed. Um, the uh, phase one data was previously uh, ex- 
you know, uh, reported at last year's ASH. And this year, I want to direct your attention to a presentation tomorrow, Abstract 74, that um, GLOVE did more long-term outcomes, uh, where they continued to, uh, they used two doses of pretreatment of obinutizumab and continued with a step-up dosing schema and now has a longer follow-up, and the overall response rate was 84%, and CR rate was 73%. You know, on the number alone, those are really very impressive, right, after the um, BTK inhibitor. And for those patients who uh, achieve a response, it looks like, you know, their curve continued to be sustained, uh, which we hope would eventually translate into a durable response uh, with long-term follow-up. Um, is there a role for target therapy in the first-line management of mental cell lymphoma? So after reviewing all our really very promising novel agents, this is sort of coming a full cycle, right? That we want to provide treatment and we want to provide the best treatment possible if, you know, from first get-go. So circling back to the first-line therapy, as reviewed before, we generally do, um, this is starting with a question again. So here... After this is the same patient but slightly different, um, same age, um, had a key 67, 50%, uh, which sometimes could be, you know, a bit concerning to both patients and the, the provider. So after consultation with the team, uh, Robert is interested in pursuing aggressive therapy, you know, because they're worried that with a high key 67, uh, what would this do for his outcome with a standard uh, chemoimmunotherapy? Um, the question is, uh, would BTK combination with chemoimmunotherapy a option? Uh, what about a chemo-sparing regimen, as now we have more and more data coming towards those options? So um, let's review our um, BTK plus chemoimmunotherapy. Um, so here, in, in the SHINE study, where ibrutinib was uh, added to the BR uh, frontline therapy, and compared with placebo, in those patients, they also receive rituximab maintenance. And over uh, close to 600 patients were enrolled. As you can see here, very, very obviously, the progression-free survival uh, separate after a year and um, at median follow-up seven years on this graph that you have an advantage of close to two years uh, for those patients who received BR plus ibrutinib versus BR alone. Uh, keep that in mind. And looking at some safety data, so incidents were also compared and of concern where maybe there's more um, discontinuation due to ibrutinib addition group, and AE um, was accounted for most of those discontinuation uh, for patients in the ibrutinib and BR group. And in, in both form and spirit, the uh, phase three echo study is very, very similar to the SHINE study where the uh, acalabrutinib will be the agent of uh, novel uh, BTK inhibitors uh, to be combined with BR and uh, rituximab uh, maintenance. And, and uh, you know, we're awaiting for the, the study to complete a crew and a mature and um, this year, at this year's ASH, the triangle study um, indeed addresses patient, younger patients who are chemoimmunotherapy candidate. Uh, in those patients, there's a three-arm, a standard arm, where it's uh, chemoimmunotherapy plus um, transplant and rituximab maintenance. Here, 
um, the experimental arm, ibrutinib, was added to the RCHOP uh, arm of the chemotherapy induction and, and subsequent maintenance. Or they, in the third arm, they do away with transplant altogether, so replacing that. And as you can see here very briefly, and, and I want to encourage you to go to the plenary session uh, on Sunday because this, the detail of this study will be reviewed um, and but the take-home message is the addition of ibrutinib. That the top two graph, the two experimental arms, achieved its primary endpoint, which is progression-free survival, was improved uh, compared with the standard chemoimmunotherapy. Um, and uh, very briefly, now that we know it works in the frontline setting, how about getting into you know more chemotherapy, uh, chemotherapy-free options with uh, you know, window option, uh, w- window uh, clinical trial as a sort of transition where you do a chemo-free uh, induction, and then for those patients, you decide if chemo-free was adequate or they need additional chemo uh, immunotherapy consolidation, and we have both window one and window two. Um, but there are also just chemo-free options altogether, and they're starting to build some longevity of, of data and also both in efficacy and, and side effects. And I want to just briefly mention those two as summarized in the slides very, very uh, nicely, the ibrutinib and rituximab uh, in elderly patients and or in low-risk uh, patients with mental cell lymphoma. They have very high response rate uh, um, and uh, v- very, uh, uh, you know, excellent long-term uh, outcome as well. And w- in, in one of the studies, patients have MRD-negative CR was able to be discontinued, and, and we continue, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 m- monitors, you know, the outcome of those uh, uh, chemo-free options. Um, and But uh, finally, you know, to, to really uh, bring this to our clinical setting in a practice-changing way, indeed, it would be important to compare chemo alone, uh, uh, chemoimmunotherapy versus uh, chemo-free options, and, and, and to, towards that end, enrich uh, a global trial is a great example of what we should be looking forward to uh, in the coming time, uh, where, you know, this is... Uh, ibrutinib rituximab plus rituximab maintenance is being compared with uh, chemotherapy rituximab and rituximab maintenance. And the study has completed its recruitment and we're eagerly awaiting the results. Um, in this year's ASH, I wanting to, in, in the interest of time, I just want to bring very uh, briefly that we do have more options of chemo-free options, acalabrutinib, lenalidomide, rituximab, ALR. So in tomorrow's session, you know, more details on this triple combination as chemotherapy-free uh, options for patients with mental cell lymphoma will be discussed. And very similarly, AVR, acalabrutinib, uh, venetoclax and rituximab as a chemo-free options for a patient will also be discussed tomorrow um, in a poster session, and I want to draw your attention to that. Um, similarly to Enrich study, we have mangrove study. Here, the uh, zenubrutinib rituximab is being compared head-to-head with bendamustine rituximab-based chemoimmunotherapy. So we, again, eagerly awaiting for those so to summarize this section, the take-home point on the BTK inhibitor and other targeted option in mental cell lymphoma, 
So uh, the uh, BTK inhibitor, including ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, zenobrutinib, they are FDA-approved agents for relapsed refractory mental cell lymphoma. There are safety differences in BTK inhibitor, which could influence selection of agents and when you consider comorbidity and some intolerance in patients. CAR-T, CD19 CAR-T therapy provides durable long-term responses in relapsed refractory mental cell lymphoma, including those who have progressed on BTK inhibitor. It does require specialized center and expertise. Uh, non-covalent BTK inhibitors, for example, potubrutinib and bispecific antibody, for example, glofitinib, are promising new agents uh, currently being evaluated for relapsed refractory mental cell lymphoma. We hope that BTK inhibitor and combination uh, can be increasingly incorporated into the frontline treatment strategy, either um, in com- combination with chemoimmunotherapy or in chemo-free uh, format. And we really look forward to those randomized uh, studies to give us further guidance and information. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Ryan. That was a fantastic overview of mantle cell lymphoma. I'm sure you'll all agree. And uh, just a reminder, do, do, um, do jot down any questions you have. We'll get through as many of those as we, as we can. Um, it's my pleasure now to introduce um, Paolo Stratti. He's an assistant professor at the MD Anderson and a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma expert. And he's going to be talking about the rationale for expanding the use of targeted agents in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So, Paolo, thank you for joining us. Look forward to your talk. Well, thank you for the introduction. Good morning to everybody. As you heard, my name is Paolo Strati. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Lymphoma and Myeloma at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And after listening to all this very interesting data regarding the use of BTK inhibitors in mental cell lymphoma, I'll try together with you to also take an aim at a large B-cell lymphoma. And to do this, we'll discuss together the biological and clinical rationale to expand the role of targeted agency in general and BTK inhibitors uh, specifically in large B-cell lymphoma. So the first question is, is there a role for BTK inhibition in patients with relapsed uh, non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma? And to answer this question, we start with a clinical case. So George uh, is a 72-year-old man who unfortunately is diagnosed for the first time with non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma, non-double espressor, non-double head, advanced stage with an IPI of 2. George has some uh, significant comorbid health conditions, including diastolic congestive heart failure and moderate COPD. Uh, as expected, uh, because patient, the patient does not have double-head lymphoma, uh, is given standard frontline chemoimmunotherapy with Archaw for six cycles, and he does achieve a complete metabolic response, but however, unfortunately, within a year, it relapses. It's seen by a transplanter, and based on age and comorbid health conditions, it seems to be transplant ineligible. Uh, what are going to be the next steps? Uh, would you consider CAR-T the best option, or is there a role for targeted therapy in general and specifically use of BTK inhibitor? And before I proceed, I think it's very important that I emphasize that uh, currently the use of BTK inhibitors in large B-cell lymphoma is off-label. None of those are, of course, yet FDA-approved for this indication. So in regard to the first point, definitely CAR-T is an approved option in second line and specifically in this setting. Uh, as you saw, this patient uh, is primary chemorefractory uh, defined as relapsed within 12 months from frontline chemoimmunotherapy. And as you all know, there are currently two products approved by the FDA for this indication, Yescarta and Brianzi. 
With the caveat, though, that Brianzi can also be used for patients who are chemosensitive, so defined as uh, relapse or progression beyond 12 months from frontline chemoimmunotherapy, uh, as long as they're deemed to be transplant ineligible. So definitely in this case, uh, either Yescart or Brianzi may be an option. However, the fact that this patient is deemed transplant ineligible may also raise a red flag for potential CAR-T eligibility. Now, as you all know, what, there's some degree of uh, agreement of what transplant eligibility looks like, in this case mainly driven by age and comorbid health conditions, there are not yet formal guidelines on how you define CAR-T eligibility, and pretty much every center is following their internal uh, workflow. Uh, but again, I believe that in this case, transplant ineligibility may raise a red flag. Uh, for patients who in second line, uh, neither transplant or CAR-T are an option, there is an FDA-approved uh, non-cellular therapy-based option, uh, which is a target agent, tafacitamab, an antibody targeting CD19 in combination with LAN. So that would also be a standard option. But what about, again, uh, off-label use of a BTK inhibitor in this patient with a relapsed non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma? So definitely there's some biological rationale. As you all know, based on a seminal gene expression profiling study now published longer than 10 years ago, we're now able to identify the cell of origin subtype uh, as either germinal center B type, uh, characterized by uh, overexpression of genes associated with the germinal center, or activated B cell type, uh, associated instead with overexpression of genes relevant to the B cell receptor. Uh, this study was based on gene expression profiling, and many sites are able to perform nanostring to uh, specifically identify the cell of origin, uh, but many sites uh, still use the uh, ANS algorithm, which is an immunohistochemistry approach that has a good overlap with the nanostring assessment. As you all know, the GCB subtype tend to be enriched with double hit lymphoma, so the high-grade B-cell lymphoma, whereas the non-GCB, which is the term that we should use when immunostochemistry is employed instead of uh, nanostring, are rich with double expressors. Now, in the original retrospective studies, patients who had uh, non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma tended to uh, yield a worse outcome, but the difference between uh, non-GCB and GCB became smaller in uh, retrospective studies that were performed in the rituximab era and is not as marked in, uh, in the current era in uh, ongoing prospective trials or in clinical trials. Things, though, over the last few years have become even more complicated. Uh, as you all know, there have been multiple groups that have also performed uh, more extensive genetic characterization of these uh, uh, genetic subtypes by performing clustering type of analysis. And overall, the ABC subgroup is shown to uh, include uh, multiple groups and so to be quite heterogeneous. The main uh, four groups that are part, thanks to the new clustering characterization of the ABC subtype, are MCD, characterized by genetic aberrations in MYD88, CD79B, and BCL12, N1, characterized by aberrations in Notch1, A53, characterized by aberration in TP53, and BN2, characterized by aberration in BCL6 and Notch2. Now, clearly, based on this, and uh, this data will be very relevant to better understand uh, specific response to BTK inhibitors in the next few slides, there's a strong biological rationale to trying to employ BTK inhibitors in patients with large B-cell lymphoma, uh, ABC, or non-GCB subtype. So the first clinical evidence was provided now almost 10 years ago by Dr. Wilson at the NIH, 
with a phase one study that included overall 80 patients with relapsed refractory non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma. In these patients, in a subgroup, it was possible to also uh, provide further characterization of cell of origin through uh, nanostring. Uh, overall, 38 patients showed to have ABC subtype and 20 patient GCB subtype. And very clearly, in this study, patients who had ABC large B-cell lymphoma had a higher response rate as compared to those who had GCB, with a 37% response rate as compared to only 5%. Of interest, which is relevant to uh, what we just discussed regarding the specific subtypes that we can now uh, identify within ABC with newer clustering classifications, those who had MYD88 mutation that points to an MCD subgroup seem to have the highest response, as, uh, as high as 55%. And this also, as you can see from this slide, translated into better overall survival with a median OS of uh, 10 months for the ABC subtype as compared to only three months for the GCB subtype. Now, uh, we know that there's a, a very rare type of large B-cell lymphoma, which is primary CNS lymphoma, but also primary vitro retinol, that tends to be almost invariably of ABC subtype and enhancedly enriched with MYD88 and CD79B mutation. So a lot of biological rationale to also test BTK inhibition in this subtype. And this was done by Dr. Leonakis uh, now five years ago in a phase one study where ibrutin was given as a leading monotherapy before adding uh, a more standard chemotherapy, in this case with uh, dose-adjusted TEDAR. All 18 patients were uh, including this kind of proof-of-concept phase 1b study, but the clinical benefit was very meaningful. As you can see here, almost everybody, 94% of patients, had a tumor reduction, and 86%, once chemotherapy was added to ibrutinib, were able to achieve a complete response. So quite impressive uh, for such an aggressive entity. Based on this phase one study where, uh, of course, patients with MYD88 or CD79B mutations were very responsive, uh, there was a subsequent phase two study where ibrutinib was used as a single agent in patients with either primary CNS lymphoma or vitro retinal subtype. Uh, 44 patients were included in this study, and also in this case, the disease control was quite meaningful, was observed in 70% of patients, and 90% uh, uh, of patients were able to achieve a complete response. That may sound not impressive, uh, but it's actually a, a, a quite good achievement uh, in patients who have a very aggressive disease with pretty much otherwise no treatment options left. One thing that I need to emphasize about actually both studies, both the phase 1b and the phase 2 that you just saw, is that there were some cases of pulmonary aspergillosis that happened, and uh, some of them were actually life-threatening. Uh, this is most likely due to the fact that uh, a non-specific BTK inhibition, such as that provided by ibrutinib, can result through mechanisms that are not yet fully uh, understood in macrophage impairment. And as a consequence, there's no good clearance of granulomatous infections, such as fungal infections. So that can be very relevant when ibrutinib use a high dose, like 560 milligrams, as we typically do for CNS lymphoma, and sometimes for large B-cell lymphoma, particularly in patients like primary CNS lymphoma patients, where we use a lot of corticosteroids. So, of course, the perfect storm in there. The, due to the concerns around safety, we use 
or by brutal large visceral lymphoma. The next step, uh, as you saw also in the mental cell lymphoma part of this presentation, was to try to use instead more specific BDK inhibitors, such as acalabrutinum. Uh, this is a study that I had the honor to lead uh, with uh, many other investigators between U.S. and Europe. It's a phase one study where we looked into the use of single-agent acalabrutinib for patients with relapsed non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma. I'm emphasizing non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma because to be able to uh, be eligible for this study, patients uh, needed just to meet this uh, immunohistochemistry-based criterion, but then subsequently, as you will see in the next few slides, there was a central review of tissue to further characterize also through nanostring the cell of origin, and you will see some interesting data. So uh, as a first step, we looked into, of course, safety in this phase one study, and as expected, we didn't see as many adverse events as you would have instead expected with uh, uh, less uh, specific BDK inhibitors. As a matter of fact, if you look into adverse events of special interest for BDK inhibition, such as bleeding or infections, they were mostly uh, grade one or two, with only 14% of patients, pretty much three patients, having uh, grade three or higher infections, and no patients having high-grade bleeding. Uh, and there were no cases at all, though, of course, the study was small, uh, only 21 patients, of atrial fibrillation, hypertension, uh, or TLS. And most importantly, we didn't see any uh, signal concerning for impairment of macrophage function and hence uh, decreased clearance of granulomatose infections such as fungal infection in this study. Efficacy data were not allegedly uh, as impressive as you also saw in, uh, with the use of ibrutin as a single agent. Response rate was 24% and median PFS was two months. However, there were some long-term responders and actually the first patient that you see here is a patient at MD Anderson who six years later uh, is still in CR. Uh, she has been seen in clinic a couple of months ago. So we try to further characterize these long-term responders and see if there's any biological signal in there. They may help us to better um, identify patients for future trials. So of interest, where we centrally review these cases, uh, patients, some of the patients who had long-term response, including the patient who is now still in CR six years later, actually had a GCB subtype. This speaks to the fact that uh, cell of origin characterization through gene expression profiling is not perfect, as we already actually learned over the last few years with the newer uh, cluster classifications. One thing that I also want to emphasize is that of interest, some of the long-term responders with morph morphological characterization that, of course, is not as sensitive as uh, genetic uh, analysis, um, uh, presented T-cell-rich histiocyte large B-cell lymphoma. And there are also some case reports showing that BTK inhibition can be very active in this rare and very aggressive large B-cell lymphoma subtype. Now, I believe this is very relevant. As you all know, T-cell-rich histiocyte large B-cell lymphoma tends to be chemorefractory, transplant refractory, and recently there have been uh, data published on blood showing that it's also CAR-T refractory. So probably we should try to investigate further the role of BDK inhibition in this very aggressive uh, rare entity. Now, you see that uh, use of single-agent BDK inhibition, though safe, is not 
that effective for relapsed refractory large B-cell lymphoma. So we should probably try to combine it with something else that, uh, based, of course, on a biological rational that may provide further activity. As you all know, uh, while the B-cell receptor is hyperactivated in patients who have non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma, downstream this also translates into hyperactivation of NF-kappa-B pathway. And lenalidomide, an oral immunomodulatory agent, can target the same pathway. And there are preclinical data, also from other uh, lymphoma models, including CLL or mental cell lymphoma, showing that this combination can be synergistic. So Dr. Goy, uh, uh, or now almost four years ago, uh, decided to look into this combination, ibrutinib and R-square, in a phase one study, where patients who had large cell lymphoma we relapsed after at least one line of systemic therapy and deemed to be transplant ineligible, like George, the patient from our uh, clinical case, were included. As you can see, the uh, efficacy data are way more impressive than single-agent ibrutinib. In responsible patients, overall response rate was 44%, with a complete response rate of 28%. However, when we focus on patients who had non-GCB subtype, response rate was 65% and complete response rate 41%. That I believe is quite impressive in uh, such an aggressive condition. And the median response duration, as you can see, was 16 months. Again, this is a population uh, that before CAR-T uh, CAR introduction didn't really have uh, much treatment options. Now... We are trying to further explore the possibility to combine BTK inhibitors with other treatments. And uh, you will see this here, Ash, uh, the results of a phase two trial trying to combine acalabrutin, so a second generation safer BTK inhibitor, uh, with uh, RICE, um, standard platinum-based second-line regimen for patients with large B-cell lymphoma uh, who relapse after frontline treatment. Uh, two cohorts were included in this study, and uh, you will hear, Ash, only about cohort A, there was the court transplant eligible data for court B, the transplant ineligible uh, patient hopefully will be present in the next couple of years. But as you will see, 19 patients overall uh, have received RICE plus SACALA in second line. And the primary endpoint, there was a complete response higher than 50% was met with a complete response of 53% and an overall response rate of 74%. Most importantly, 68% of patients for whom transplant was planned were able to proceed with, with autologous transplant. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll hear more about long-term follow-up in the next few months. Adverse events with RICE plus SACALA didn't seem to be any worse than we would expect with uh, um, RICE alone, as we, we could have expected also based on the very good safety profile of, of ACALA as a single agent. So... Sounds like we may be able to use BTK inhibitors for patients who have relapsed refractory uh, non-GCB large cell lymphoma, but what about using for patients who are previously untreated? Is there any room for using it either as a single agent or in combination? So to answer this question, again, we look into a clinical case. Uh, Mark uh, is a uh, young patient, 57-year-old, that presents, unfortunately, with a new diagnosis of non-GCB large cell lymphoma, uh, very favorable biological features, non-double espressor, non-double head, the advanced stage with IPI of one, is very healthy, uh, very good performance status. And as such, he wants to try to be as aggressive as possible and give himself the highest possible chance of cure. So what uh, should be the next step? Should we just offer our job, or is there a role for the addition of target treatments or BDK inhibitors in this case? Of course, within clinical trials, to which sounds like this patient is open. Uh, 
So currently, for this patient who doesn't have double-head lymphoma, of course, the standard approach is represented by RCHOP, though it may not hold true in Europe, whereas, you know, as you all know, over the last few months, the EMA has approved the use of POLA in combination with RCHIP based on the Polaric study uh, for all patients with large B-cell lymphoma. Though of interest in all studies looking into use of POLA, most likely due to uh, inhibition of CD79B, of course, relevant to the B-cell receptor, there's, uh, in post-hoc analysis, evidence for a better activity in non-GCB subtype. So this patient may benefit in the U.S. of off-label use of polar RCHIP. But what about trying to uh, enroll this patient into a trial where we add a BTK inhibitor to chemoimmunotherapy? Uh, is there any data uh, to back up this type of decision? As you all know, this has been investigated in a now infamous randomized phase three trial, the Phoenix trial, where um, patients with large B-cell lymphoma were randomized to receive either RCHOP plus placebo or RCHOP plus ibrutinib. And unfortunately, the primary endpoint uh, of prolonged event-free survival wasn't met. However, in a pre-planned analysis investigating the interaction between age and possibility to deliver full six cycles of RCHOP, uh, there was uh, clearly an influence of age on how treatment was delivered. As a matter of fact, uh, while there was no difference in EFS or overall survival for patients who were older, this seemed to be due to the fact that these patients have tended to have more adverse events with the addition of ibrutinib to RCHOP and were unable to receive the full six cycles of treatment. But when we limited the analysis, and again, this was a postdoc but pre-planned analysis to patients who were younger than 60, there was a significant prolongation in event-free survival for patients who received RCHOP plus ibrutinib as compared to RCHOP plus placebo, and even a longer overall survival that you have to admit is not something that we typically see in large B-cell lymphoma trials. Uh, of course, though, the primary endpoint wasn't met, though this wasn't enough to um, convince the FTA to get this approved. Over the last few years, uh, we have trying to understand if there was any biomarker that would help us to even better identify patients who may benefit from this strategy beyond non-GCB subtype and young age. And so Dr. Wilson has characterized a subgroup of patients who were treated within the Phoenix study by applying the newer genetic classifications. And what he was able to see is that two of the four subgroups that I showed you before, MCD and N1, seem to be associated with better response to RCHOP plus cybrutinib. And as you saw before, these are groups enriched in genetic aberrations in MYD88, CD79B, BCL12, and as for N1 in NOTCH1. Now, we're still combining BDK inhibitors to chemo, but can we use BDK inhibitors to try to minimize use of chemo as much as possible? Uh, though uh, currently uh, it's not a standard approach. So this has been tried by Dr. Weston with the Smart Start study, where he used ibrutinib plus R-square as a lead-in of two cycles, and uh, patients were subsequently restaged, and in case of CROPR, received the subsequent cycles of chemotherapy with RCHOP or EPOC based on double-hit status. Of interest in this study, as you can see, after only two cycles of chemotherapy-free approach, 86% of patients had a response with a complete response of 36%, but the complete response rate with the addition of um, uh, chemotherapy went up to 95% at the end of treatment. And the uh, median PFS and overall survival at two years were higher than 90%. 
Of interest in this study, some patients decided to actually withhold chemo after the two cycles of uh, IR square, and some of them are still in complete response at follow our center. So there's some data to suggest that maybe eventually we may completely get rid of chemotherapy. And actually, Dr. Weston is now trying to do that, not only by starting smartly, but also by stopping smartly. So the, uh, what he's currently doing uh, in this study, which is still ongoing, so I have no data to present, uh, is, got, is using still a BTK inhibitor, though a safer BTK inhibitor such as Akala, combined with uh, still uh, uh, R-square, but also tafacitimab, the anti-CD19 antibody, for four cycles. And then patients who are in CR will receive subsequently only two cycles of our chop. If in this first stage of the study, the primary endpoint of efficacy will be met, in the second stage, those who are in CR after four cycles of ultra will only receive biological therapy. So this is really the first trial challenging the paradigm that our chop is here to stay and never leave, uh, which is a paradigm in which I don't believe either. So hopefully we'll hear more about this in the next couple of years. The uh, data that you heard before from the Phoenix uh, trial, um, as you heard, uh, were um, unsuccessful mainly due to the non-specific BTK inhibition provided by ibrutinib and the uh, subsequent toxicity and inability to deliver six uh, full cycles of RCHOP plus BTK inhibitor. As a consequence, uh, and you will hear about this ash this year, we're now trying to combine ACALA instead to RCHOP. This is a phase, uh, phase one, two trial uh, called the ACCEPT trial. Um, as you can see, 38 patients have been enrolled overall. Uh, the dose of 100 milligram BID has been identified as the recommended phase two dose in the first seven patients. And as you all know, this is the standard dose of ACALA in other conditions. And uh, now this has been added to our CHOP. And in those who received the recommended phase two dose of ACALA, the response rate was 96%, with 79% achieving a complete response. So quite impressive. And based on this, now this is moving to a Phoenix-like randomized phase 3 trial called the Escalade, where a patient will be randomized to receive RCHOP plus placebo or RCHOP plus SACALA. And again, hopefully we'll hear about the results of this trial in the next few years. Now, with very limited time left, I'll try to very quickly discuss whether we can use targeted agents for patients who relapse after CAR-T. And uh, again, we'll do this with a clinical trial. This is a patient, uh, a young patient with large cell lymphoma, uh, very typical scenario, double hit lymphoma, so a more aggressive lymphoma, receives our CHOP, relapses, second line, POLA BR, that as you all know, is not formally FDA approved in second line, but can be used based on NCCN guidelines for those who have double hit uh, subtype, doesn't work, receives AxiCell, and then unfortunately relapses after AxiCell. So what can we do for this patient? Uh, is there a role for target agents after CAR-T? Currently, as you all know, there are four products approved by the FDA in third line or beyond. Uh, uh, two of them target CD19, uh, long CAR-T and TAFA in combination with LAN. One targets XPO1, Selinexer, and then in this case, Polatuzumab targeting CD79B has already been employed. Uh, of course, clinical trials are always the preferred option for patients who relapse after CAR-T, and we'll talk more about that. But this remains an unmet need. There's no standard treatment, and we don't really know what's the best approach uh, for uh, patients who, in whom cellular therapy doesn't work. So what do we went through this? Uh, these are standard treatment options, but is there any data either from pivotal trials or real-world that back up their use after CAR-T? 
Of all the pivotal trials that have brought to the approval of these four agents, only one, the Lotus II, allowed previous exposure to CAR-T. So we only have data about long CAR-T in pivotal trials after uh, CAR-T. And in only 13 patients received long CAR-T after CAR-T in the Lotus II. The response rate was similar to the larger population, close to 40-50%, but the complete response rate was quite low, around 14%, and with very short medium PFS. So really, we need to utilize as much as possible real-world data to understand how these agents can be used after CAR-T. Uh, in this multi-center retrospective study, uh, we looked into use of POLA, with or without BR, after CAR-T. As you can see, uh, the complete response rate was also quite low, but most importantly, median PFS and overall survival were in the order of weeks. So POLA doesn't seem to be that effective after CAR-T. Uh, there are not really real-world data regarding use of Selinexor, a targeted agents after CAR-T, but at ASH this year, you will hear some data uh, from the Mayo Clinic uh, looking into use of, again, long CAR-T or TAFA after CAR-T. It's a small sample size, 41 patients, but also in this case, median PFS and overall survival are not uh, too impressive. So really, the take-home message is that while we have standard options available and all of them are biological and targeted, they don't seem to be very effective, and it's very important to offer clinical trials for those who can be eligible. The issue, though, this is a very interesting publication from Dr. Bezerra and Mayo uh, on blood advances from a couple of months ago, is that uh, more than half of patients are unable to access clinical trials after CAR-T, and this, trial, this study was specific to ability to access glofitamab, uh, one of the newer bispecific engaging CD3 and CD20, and the main reason was cytopenia. As you all know, 30% of patients with large B-cell lymphoma will develop very persistent and severe cytopenia after CAR-T. We are trying to understand what the biological mechanisms are. And in light of this, we should probably try to uh, change eligibility criteria, at least for cytopenia in new clinical trials, as long as we think the, the agents that we investigate will not generate too much myelosuppression. So uh, to conclude, uh, BTK inhibitors or BTK inhibitor-based combinations can be used and can be effective for patients with relapsed non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma. It can also be combined with chemoimmunotherapy in those who have previously untreated non-GCB large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, thanks to this novel molecular classification with the clustering subtype, uh, we can better identify patients who may benefit from use of BTK inhibitors. Though, of course, it's going to take time before this may be widely available, also due to uh, cost. And uh, as of today, for patients who relapse after CAR-T, while targeted agents are available, based on pivotal and real-world data, they don't seem to be an ideal approach, and it's really important to look into clinical trials for these patients. Thank you for your attention. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that great overview. Um, so um, we're going to get, we've got um, a couple of minutes. We're a little short of time, but we'll get through as many questions as we can. So um, Dr. Ryan, a, que a question for you um, about um, T-cell fitness and bendamustin use. So obviously, you know, we've, we've seen bendamustin is quite widely used in the frontline setting. It's the backbone immunochemotherapy for the ECHO study, for SHINE, etc. How do you view frontline bendamustin use in light of the recent data we've seen from Zuma 2 about T-cell fitness um, for bendamustin use within a 
you know, reasonably short time before CAR T cell therapy. Does that change your strategy in the frontline setting or not? Um, I think that's, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think that BR backbone is really very effective and it's very convenient and it's quite widely um, applicable and we also use it in somewhat those uh, adjust, adjusted fashion based on patient comorbidity. So I feel like it is uh, agent uh, here to stay, but, you know, again, I think, you know, your, your uh, question pertaining particularly to the CAR-T, um, the, the state of the health of the T-cells and, and how that would affect T-cell efficacy and, and longevity. Um, I, I think that in our uh, own clinical practice, you know, we certainly haven't, you know, by standard of care adopted uh, shine type of uh, for, formal, uh, for, format where uh, BTK inhibitor is used in conjunction with BR. We generally would use uh, chemoimmunotherapy such as BR initially, and then, you know, you can certainly sequence with um, BTK inhibitor. Uh, in doing so, you know, clearly you have a break or rest and hopefully allow T, some T-cell recovery and and, um, you know, we also, you know, in, in case where, you know, there, there is need for CAR-T, we uh, certainly want to have some somewhat of a lapse uh, between the uh, use of bendamustine-based chemotherapy and then harvest, at least the harvest part of your T-cells. Mm. So I think it, it does become somewhat technically needs to be mindful about it. Um, just um, also that now that a lot of things wanting to be used in combination as opposed to be sequencing. So I think it's a very important question. I don't know if we have a, yeah. a clear, definitive answer on that. Sure. And if, if I can add one thing, I think that also timing is key. There have been some retrospective data from Zuma to you presented at ASCO this year showing that based on um, the, the, wind, the, the window of infusion of bendamustine and CAR-T infusion, the effect may actually change. So you, it sounds like the sweet spot may be around six months. Mm-hmm. So we yep. try to avoid as much as possible uh, exposure to bendamustine within the time frame. We try to do the same in large B-cell lymphoma. As you'll know, polatuzuma, which is a very common bringing therapy before CAR-T, is formally approved in combination with BR. But definitely, I would say majority of us uh, drop the bendamustine uh, if within the six months from the CAR T infusion window. Okay. Um, there's a question here about BTKs being used as a bridge for CAR T and mantle cell lymphoma. So I'll just briefly answer that. I think, I think if you've got a patient progressing on a BTK inhibitor who's got low volume disease and they're CAR T cell suitable, then I think absolutely it's a very reasonable strategy. It was used in Zuma 2. More often than not, though, patients will need some sort of alternative bridging strategy because of the pace of their disease. But I'd certainly continue the BTK inhibitor until the point they needed or, or you were able to initiate the, the, the bridging therapy because patients can have very explosive progression um, and actually it's quite challenging to get patients to CAR-T um, in that setting. So keep them on the BTK inhibitor until you've got your therapy sort of sorted before then. Um, there's a, a, a question um, There's a question about um, can CAR-T cell therapy be done after glofitumab? So this is a question about where you should use your bispecific. Um, uh, Gia, do you want to tackle that one? And then we'll do one more and then we'll, we'll close. Um, right. So, um, you know, presumably, you know, our expected sequence was to approach CAR-T first, you know, just because it's part of the standard of care and assume that, you know, there's good performance status to accommodate either. So, but, um, you know, again, I, I, I don't see, you know, 
why not? I just don't, I can't predict the efficacy, you know, after buy specific and then go back to CAR-T. The targets are different, CAR-T's CD19 and then your buy specifics uh, anti-CD20. So technically there's no conflict. It's just, tech, you know, the, the therapeutics, you know, one, one has to be careful. Uh, again, CAR-T, there's also, you know, therapeutic or, or experimental therapeutic CAR-T, so perhaps that carries its own novelty uh, to be sequenced after by specifics. It's quite theoretical at this yeah. point. I think if clofitumab's developed further in mantle cell lymphoma, I suspect if we're going to see randomized studies, we may see them in the CAR-T naive patient pool. Because yes. uh, speaking to your, your point about yes. studies post-CAR-T, they're particularly challenging, aren't they? Yes. Um, and then one final question. This is a little um, unfair, Dr. Aaron, because we haven't seen the full data. But how do you see, based on the abstract that we've seen about the triangle study, um, how do you see the results of that changing the treatment pathway in the frontline setting for young, fit mantle cell lymphoma patients? Um, you know, I, I think that the most uh, impressive part is is the arm, you know, where you could potentially, like, replace autologous stem cell transplant. You know, that's the eye arm. And I think that that's a, a question that's on our mind now that you have very... Uh, you know, high-quality uh, response with novel agents combinations. In, do you need consolidation um, to, to continue to have a sustained remission, especially because you uh, continue to apply something like rituximab maintenance or uh, BTK inhibitor maintenance therapy? So, um, you know, from a reducing toxicity standpoint, you know, it, it seems to be making sense, but, again, you have to see more of the data. Excellent. Thank you very much. Great. Well, um, time has beaten us. Thank you all so much for, for joining us and for bringing your questions. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YVY860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Lilly.